Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Today is from Genesis 21, verses 1 through 3, and then 33 through 34. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And in verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Camden. I hope we'll get a chance to meet soon. So good to see you all here this morning. Uh, As Lucius was saying, we have been working our way through the life of Abraham in this series, The God of Promises, and we are closing in on on the end of uh, the life of Abraham. We'll reach uh, substantial completion on that next week. Nathan is going to take us through um, a very pivotal moment in not just in Abraham's life, but in the whole Bible, right, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Um, But that is really set up in some ways by what goes on here in, in chapter 21. We see, as we've been working through this series, we Uh, have been hearing so much about this promise of Isaac being born. Uh, For years and years now, Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for this promise, and we finally see that promise fulfilled in the first part of chapter 21. And Abraham is now 100 years old, and he has received other, this is just part of the promises that God has given to him. Remember the other promises that he's given was that he would his descendants through Isaac would become a great nation of people and that they would take ownership of this land that he's living in now. But Abraham must realize at this point in life that he is never going to see those promises happen in his lifetime. And yet he still believes in them. And as we come to the end of this chapter, we see him considering all of these things and calling out to God, the eternal, everlasting God. So we're going to take some time today to to think about the eternal nature of God and see how all of the things that are swirling around in Abraham's life draw him to learn this about the nature of God. So let's have a word of prayer and, and we'll dive in today. Lord, we we come before you this morning with uh, so, so many things going on in, in all of our lives right now, and so many other um, circumstances competing for our thoughts. So Lord, I pray that you would help us now to, to put those things aside and that we would consider this, this part of your nature, that you are eternal, and, and what that means for us, how we see that in the Scripture Lord, there is so much there, and I pray that you would just help us today to to see what you would have for us in your word this morning. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I have the uh, misfortune of having a birthday that falls on December 21st. It is just a few days before another birthday that is a little more prominent and widely celebrated than mine, and it kind of overshadows my day, if you know what I mean. Um, it's not that big of a deal to me at this age. That's what I say anyways. But, but growing up when birthdays are, are really a big deal, uh, it was kind of a downer, right, to have a birthday that was that close to Christmas. And, uh, but it was still something that I really looked forward to. It was still one of my favorite days of the year. And uh, when that calendar would get flipped to the month of December, uh, I would see on, on the 21st, my mom would have written in that my birthday was coming up. I would just be so excited for that day. And I don't remember how old I was, but I was, I was pretty young. For, for sake of what I'm going to say later on, let's imagine I'm very young at this point. I realized there was some other words already written on the calendar. Um, and that said, winter solstice. Uh, well, what is winter solstice about? So I asked my mom, what, what's this other thing that's on my birthday? And she said, well, winter solstice is the first day of winter. Now, I grew up in, in Fairbanks, Alaska, so by December 21st, it had already been winter for several months. So that was a little confusing. I was like, well, what, what is all the cold and snow we've had up till this point? But then she dropped this bombshell. She said, and it's the shortest day of the year. So not only does my birthday happen in winter, I don't get footballs or anything, just get sweaters. It's also right next to Christmas, and it's the shortest day of the year. Now, obviously, she meant daylight, but I didn't, my mind started to, to run with this. I said, you know what? My birthday is one of my favorite days of the year, and it seems to just fly by. That makes perfect sense. It is a shorter day. And the days between that and Christmas, those days are just worthless. You just want Christmas to come at that point. Those days seem to drag on forever. So it's the shortest day of the year, the longest days of the year, and then Christmas seems to be pretty short as well. That was, obviously it took a few years to unravel my uh, misguided thoughts about, about winter solstice. But when I stop and try to consider eternity, which I, I admittedly don't do often enough, I find that I have the same sort of misguided notions about time. Really, if, if I would stop and, and really consider eternity, the things that I'm going through, the momentary problems right now, wouldn't they fall into such a more clear perspective of what really matters? My attitude, as I am still in younger years of life, has really been, What's the point of thinking about eternity? Heaven is great. I, I'll, I'll be there someday. I'm going to be there for a long time. I'm really busy with life going on right now. Why, why do I need to think about eternity? A few years ago, my wife, uh, Carrie, was reading the book uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And, uh, and it's a thick book. And just looking at the, the length of time it was going to take her to read the book about heaven, I thought, man, there's so many, so many other things you could be doing during that amount of time. And as we get later on in life, I think the natural progression is we begin to think more and more about heaven and eternity. But really, this is something that we all need to consider. Eternity 
is a long time, and our, the amount of time that we are going to spend here in this life in comparison is very, very brief. The Bible describes our life as just like a vapor. It's and it's gone. Considering eternity and the eternal nature of God is vital to having a correct perspective on the things that happen in our life and also the way that our life on this earth fits into our eternal life. So what are, what are some of the things that we need to consider about eternity? We're going to look at a couple of these and then we'll, we'll dig right into, uh, into Genesis. But the first really important reason why we need to consider eternity is that we have an eternal soul. Now, God is eternal in the sense that he has always been and always will be. He does not have a beginning. We, as his creation, we do have a beginning. But from that point on, we have an eternal soul. And there's nothing going on in this universe right now that is more important than figuring out what is our eternal destiny going to be. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So we get, we get a clue here. It's not that we just die and, and we just go to the grave, and that's it, as many people will teach. Eat, drink, and be merry. Have as much pleasure as you can in this life, because that's really all there is. No, it says after our time on this earth is over, there is a judgment. And after that judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear the second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We see another distinction. There are some people who are living this life that are eagerly waiting for Christ. And there are other people who fear, who greatly fear that judgment and having to face an eternal God. But we don't have to have that fear. Just as it says in this passage, Jesus has already dealt with sins so that we don't have to. But on that word judgment, so many of the religions of this world have based an entire system of works that, that says that once we get to that judgment, all of our good works will be put on one side of the scale and all of our bad works will be put on the other side. And you really have no way of knowing today where that scale is. There's no app that tells you, you know what, your, your behavior lately has, been, has kind of put you in the red. Here's some suggestions of things you can do to get yourself back in the green. No, so under that sort of system, we're just left to wonder, have we done enough good? Have we not? Is there even enough time left in our life to do enough good that will outweigh all of the bad things that we've done? That is not the way that Jesus wants us to live. He has already dealt with sins. And if we come to him in faith, realizing that we have sin that needs to be forgiven, that if it is not forgiven, we will be judged for. If we come to him in faith, and we accept his work on the cross, his payment for our sins and his resurrection, he will deal with all of our sins and take them away so that we can eagerly await his return. Paul was someone who had this mindset. In Philippians chapter 4, and verse 23, he said, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Paul knew what his eternal destiny was going to be, and he was eagerly awaiting for it to the point that he said, that would be so much better than anything else going on in my life right now. But that also gave him the perspective not to just isolate and get off by himself and just kind of wait for heaven. No, the thing that was keeping him here, the thing that made it difficult was the people that he loved in this world and wanting to spend time with them and invest in them. He didn't say, well, I I have a snow machine on order and I really want to put some miles on it this winter and then I want to go be with Christ. No, it was the people that he was investing in. His, his thoughts about eternity gave him a clear perspective on what was important in life. Also, when we think about eternity, it gives us a more clear perspective about the injustice that we see in this world. Without considering eternity, this world is unjust at best and almost unbearable at worst. We see in Luke chapter 16 that Jesus taught about how eternity is a large part of justice. No one is is getting away with anything. There's only a long period of time sometimes between what is done and the judgment that is coming. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who who had no heart for God. He had no compassion at all in his heart. And he lived a life of luxury and excess, And outside his gate was a poor man that was just slowly dying, starving, malnourished, and he did nothing at all to help him. And both of those men died, and in eternity, the scales of justice were brought out. And Lazarus, who had no, uh, the rich man rather, who had no heart for God, no compassion at all, had to pay for what he had done. And Lazarus, who had nothing in this life but God, was brought to be with God forever. So we see in eternity that justice is done. But also another one of the questions that that also haunts us in this life is, is why do bad things happen to good people? And there's, we could take a whole sermon just to look into that question. But when we consider it in light of eternity, the same God that, that seemingly allows tragedies to happen to good people is the same God that in eternity will give undeserved pleasure to those who have done nothing to merit it. So we see in eternity that justice is done and that the things in this, this life that seem unbearable will all be rectified. We see that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." The things that this life and this world shoves right in front of our face are all temporary. But if we live a life that just reacts to the latest thing that is put right in front of our face, we are not going to have the peace and joy that we can have 
by realizing that there is so much beyond what is right in front of us. When we consider eternity and the eternal nature and purposes of God, we see that so much else is at work. So as we return to this passage, just keep some of this in mind as the things that we are going to see that Abraham is going through begin to direct his thoughts towards the eternal nature and purposes of God. We see this at the end of the the chapter, and we get a little more clue into what is going on in, in Abraham's heart and mind in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10. It says that Abraham, who had just as we'll see, gotten to this, this place through all of his traveling where he would really spend the rest of his life, the next 75 years, sort of in this area in a, in a time of, of peace. But his focus wasn't there on this land that he had just arrived at. No, it says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking ahead to the same thing that we are looking ahead to. That someday this whole life and this whole world will pass away and we will be with God forever. So the first thing I want to see from, the, from uh, the life of Abraham here is that God's eternal purposes are not hurried. You think about the whole arc of the Bible. You think of where Abraham is in it and how quickly he thought maybe some of these things would come to pass. But it would be thousands of years before Christ would come. And even thousands of years after that, here we still are. And if we were the ones that were in charge of it, we would want things to happen a lot faster. But God's eternal purposes are not hurried. God is not bound to a short lifespan here on this earth like we are. His plans and purposes span eternity. And when you have eternity, you never have to be in a hurry. We will never hear God say this phrase to us, you're just wasting my time. No, we are the focus of what God is doing. And his purposes are eternal and they are not hurried. What we accomplish for God is so often what our focus is. And what God's focus is, is who we are becoming. He wants us to become more and more like his son. And we often get our focus off of that and put onto what we can accomplish and how we look to everyone else around us. And as we're going to see with Abraham, how we look to those around us is not always going to be the finished product because we are not a finished product. To see this, we go back a chapter uh, to chapter 20, where we pick up a little bit about who uh, this guy Abimelech is. And in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1, says, from there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abram said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Does this sound familiar? And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself, say to me, she is my sister? 
And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands have I done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. And in verse 7, now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, that he will pray for you and you shall live. If this sounds familiar, we went through something very similar to this in Genesis chapter 12. And it worked so good that time, Abraham said, well, let's try it again. Abraham had gone into Egypt with his, with his family and all of the people with him. He had lied about who his wife was then. And God protected them in that situation. But when the Egyptians found out what he had done, remember he kicked Abraham and all of those people that were with him out of the country. And maybe Abraham now, as this king Abimelech comes and confronts Abraham about this lie. Maybe he thinks that about the same thing is going to happen again. But this time God says, no, you are going to live in this same land. You are going to have a relationship with this person that you've just lied to. And I am going to work on you through this process. God even calls Abraham a prophet here. And he arranges it so that Abimelech has to come to Abraham so that Abraham can pray that God doesn't judge Abimelech because of the lie that Abraham told him. This is a mess, but God works in our messes because his purposes are not hurried. Now and then do you get a reminder that we still have a depraved, faithless flesh that we're dealing with? I know I do. And in those moments, it seems like, oh, you just can't believe that we've fallen into the same thing again. But as we see in that picture in Jeremiah, when we are marred in God's hands, he just lumps us back together again and starts to make another vessel. He doesn't throw us away. He has all the time in the world. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham, was once driving through a construction zone, road construction. And as you know, they, they like their signs, right? So there's signs all over the place, and construction's coming, move over this way, loose gravel, all of these things. And then she got to the end of this construction zone, and there was one last sign that read, um, end of construction, thank you for your patience. And she was struck by this thought that is from the, till the very last moment that we are here in this earthly body, God is still working on us. And it made such an impact on her that she had this written on her headstone after she died. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Now we are still alive, so we need a different sign that says, under construction, pardon the mess. That's what I need. When we feel like we've, we've just messed up for the last time, God is not done with us. He continues to work on us. And he wants us to continue to minister to others through that mess. God, Satan wants us to think that we're disqualified and God will never use us again. God wants us to minister through the messes that we make. And he continues to work on us because his purposes are not hurried. 
We also see that God's eternal purposes are greater than our current problems. In the first part of chapter 21, we see this joyous birth of Isaac. Finally, this child of promise has been born. And then we see in verse 8 that this joy just continues as the child begins to grow a little bit. And it says in chapter 21 in verse 8, the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells to you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. We talk a lot about how in the next chapter, God asks, his, God asks Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. We don't think about how this is set up in chapter 21, by God telling Abraham that he has to send his teenage son away, never to be seen again. That would have been very, very difficult, as you imagine, for Abraham to do. And he is very torn up about it. But God had a purpose in this as well. And God had, Abraham had to trust that God is going to protect and bless Ishmael, just like God promised. Abraham doesn't fully understand why, but he still has to trust God through this. We see some of the reasoning for this in that Ishmael, who is now a teenager, is the firstborn son of Abraham. He is, if nothing else, the dominant heir now in the family, which was never God's plan. It was for Isaac to be his firstborn. And because of that, it taints this eternal picture that God wants to draw. In the next chapter, when God tells Abraham to offer up his son Isaac, he says, your son Isaac, your only son. Well, that could not be the case as long as Ishmael was still there. We even see in the, the covenant of circumcision, when God comes to Abraham and he tells him that Sarah is going to bear a son. Abraham is struggling to wrap his mind around that, and he says, but, but, but what about Ishmael? Can't Ishmael be the son of promise? And God has to completely eliminate this from Abraham's thinking. We also see in the book of Galatians that there is a bigger picture that God is teaching through the life of Abraham that ties in with this. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 22, it says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that was Ishmael, and one by a free woman, which is Isaac. And the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And that passage goes on to, to point out that once the son of promise was received, the son that was a work of the flesh could not be a joint heir with the son of promise. 
Just as once we are saved, our old works of the flesh are not to be brought into our life with Christ. Those are to be put away with completely. Abraham couldn't have seen all of this at the time, but he trusted that God's eternal purposes were bigger than the pain that it was causing him in the moment. We also see something very amazing that came through God's purposes. Through Christ, which would come through the line of Isaac, we are made joint heirs with Christ. We who are undeserving and should be cast away, just like Ishmael, are able to become joint heirs with Christ. We see this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Again and again, we see this. Our temporary suffering has an eternal purpose. And through this suffering that Abraham had to go through, we see this picture that we now can be undeserving as we are, can become joint heirs with Christ and receive everything that God has promised to him. So not only are God's eternal purposes bigger than our current problems, but God's eternal purposes begin now. They begin here in this room. They begin in our car on the way home today. They begin in our family. They begin in our everyday relationship with Christ. It's so easy to to see or hear about God doing something big, right? Some, some fruit is really being born somewhere in some other place, some other family, some other part of the world. You know, God's eternal purposes, even though they may not seem obvious, are going on right now in our lives. And we have to be aware of that. Even though Abraham had received the son of promises, there was other eternal promises that were part of God's covenant with Abraham that Abraham wouldn't see in his lifetime. But God was working in all of those things, in the day-to-day life of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac to make those things come to pass. And God made a space for Abraham to enjoy fellowship with him. We see in the, the later part of chapter 21 how Abimelech, this king that had... Um, had that that interaction with Abraham, had told Abraham that he could live in the land that he was ruling over. And so Abraham went and and set up camp there. And we see in, in verse 22 that Abimelech and the commander of his army ride out to meet with Abraham. And maybe Abraham had a little fear that, that came up him again. Why is the king and the commander of the army coming out with their men to, to see me? But the reason is a little surprising. We see in in chapter 21 and verse 23, Abimelech comes to Abraham and said, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. The king and the commander of his army ride out to Abraham and said, will you promise to be nice to us? 
That probably wasn't what he was expecting to hear. But Abraham begins to see a little bit of how God is giving, beginning to give him influence and control in this land that he had promised him. Even though he and his descendants would not actually take ownership of the land for many more years, God is beginning this work and beginning to show Abraham he doesn't have to cower in fear. He can confront this king. And we see this right after the passage that we just read. In verse 25, it says, When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. Abraham begins to stand up to this king that he was so afraid of. And the king says, whoa, I didn't, I didn't know that my servants had taken this well. The well is yours. We will not dispute this well with you anymore. And Abraham begins to see how God is beginning to give him a place in this land. And at the end of the chapter, it says that Abraham planted a tree there by this well. Some of the other translations say that he planted a grove of trees, which makes sense in, in what they would do with some of these wells and they would create what we would think of as an oasis in the wilderness, a place that you can go and, and sit under the shade of the trees with some cool water there nearby. Usually when we see Abraham calling out to the Lord, what has he just done? Usually built an altar, right? In this case, it's a little bit different. He plants some trees, he establishes this sort of oasis, and then he calls out to God from a place that is just going to be part of their everyday routine. They're not going to necessarily sacrifice on an altar every day. They're going to come to this well every day and be reminded that God has given them this and it is part of his eternal purposes. Abraham began to claim ownership of the land that God promised to him. And he built there an oasis for the soul. When we think about heaven, how heaven is, is just hard to comprehend, but it is, if you think about a, a TV show, maybe you've, you've watched a show and that has a cliffhanger at the end of every episode or at the end of every season to the point that you just can't, oh, you can't wait to watch the next one. And you stay up way too late at night because you have to watch the next part of it. And it just, it just gets better and better. And, and you get another cliffhanger. and oh, I just, Or maybe a book series. And you get to the end of the book. And you think, oh, I just have to. That was so good. But I want to find out what happens next. And you just want to read the next one. But then inevitably, you come to the end of the book series or the end of the show. And sometimes they don't even finish it off as well as they should have. But that feeling of wanting the next part, wanting to just continue a little bit more and a little bit more. That's what I, I see about heaven in the Bible. But it never ends. We just, we are so purely satisfied by Christ and we just want more of it and more of it and more of it, but it, it never ends. And the pleasure of it just never diminishes. But we can have that same pleasure today. When we think about our eternal life, sometimes we think about that happening when we're done with this earthly body. But no, it has already begun. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, your eternal life has already begun. 
Thankfully, it won't all be lived in this fleshly body. But that same joy that we will experience in heaven is available to us now when we spend time with the person who is going to make heaven what it is. And just like in Jesus' prayer, our prayer can be that his kingdom will come on earth just as it is in heaven. We don't have to wait for heaven to see God's eternal purposes playing out. We can see it today, and we can be a part of that if we are aware of it and we seek out that time with Christ. I was recently uh, reading this passage with Mary and, and Martha and in Luke chapter 10, and it, I'd read it so many times, I've heard it. it's sort of a Christian maxim, right? Martha is in the kitchen doing meal prep, and Mary is spending time with Jesus, and, and, uh, and we say, well, you know, you shouldn't be so concerned with meal prep or whatever it is, getting the kids to school, that you don't spend time with Jesus. But it really goes much deeper than that. In Luke chapter 10, verse 41, in response to Martha, Martha's cry to Jesus for Mary to come help her, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. And it say, you know, you're, you're too concerned about meal prep. He said, no, you are anxious. You are troubled about many things. He looked right into her soul, past the kitchen, past all the things that she was busy with. said, Martha, you are anxious and you're troubled about many things. But Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. I think if, if Jesus had sent some people into the kitchen to help Martha finish up the cooking, that wouldn't have been the end of it. She, just like us, when we were anxious and troubled about many things, would probably say, well, now I need to go clean the living room and just continue the cycle of busyness. But no, he says, the meal prep's not the problem. You're anxious and you're troubled about many things. Come, come here, sit next to Mary and spend some time investing in this eternal relationship that will never be taken away. In John 17 and verse 3, Jesus gives this definition of eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If that's the definition of eternal life, we can have that today, can we not? When we spend that time investing in our eternal relationship with Christ. And so often, us with our, our finite minds spend so much time praying that, that God would bend his eternal plans to fit what we feel like what would, would be best for us in this moment that we are so obsessed with, instead of praying that God would bend our hearts to fit his eternal plans and purposes. When we see how our time on this earth fits into our eternal lives, into God's eternal purposes, the need to have it all right now is greatly diminished, is it not? Matthew chapter 19 and verse 29 says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We don't have to try to create heaven on this earth. 
heaven is already waiting. And when we see God's eternal purposes and plans and we gain the right perspective about what he wants to do in us, we don't have to have it all right now to have joy. That is coming. We can have joy by focusing on that eternal relationship with him that is already started and is already available to us today. So I hope from this, these thoughts about eternity, a topic that is, that is so vast that we could never cover it all in a short amount of time. And we see how Abraham's interactions with God and his recognition of God's eternal purposes caused him to stop and consider and call out to the eternal God. I hope that will be true of us today as well. That we'll see that God's eternal purposes are not hurried. Whatever we think that should be happening faster, it doesn't need to happen faster. We just need to accept what God is doing in our lives today as he draws us closer and closer to him. God's eternal purposes are greater than our current problems. But God's eternal purposes in our lives have already begun. Whatever problems we walked in here today with, we're probably going to walk out with the exact same problems. But if we, like Abraham, are able to see the eternal perspective of God's purposes, it will allow us to rest and have peace just like Abraham did in the thought and the truth of the everlasting God. Let me pray for us that we'll be able to have the same mind as well. Lord, we come before you just acknowledging how prone we are to, to wander, to so easily we are to, to doubt and to run to a place of, of faithlessness and, and panic and anxiety. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to see more of who you are, of what you are doing, what you want to accomplish in our lives, that we would not be anxious and, and hurried, but that, Lord, we would accept that you are working in your timing and that you will accomplish your work in us and that we can have peace and rest in that today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.